right, as Bradley mentioned, we are in Song of Songs, chapter 3. If you've not arrived there yet, please uh, meet me there. That'll be our primary text today. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, grateful to open up God's Word, and it has already been a wonderful couple of weeks, has it not, (laughs) in two chapters. I would just like to say, way to get two chapters done in two weeks. We usually take a couple years to get a couple of chapters done, so that ought to feel good. Um, But we've already covered quite a bit, and perhaps more things have been going on in your heart and your mind and your body than you would ever expect um, from opening up the scriptures. And so I think it's good to just take account of that if you haven't already, um, collecting those thoughts of what the Lord designed our bodies for, our sexuality for, our relationships, romantic pursuits, and all of these sorts of desires that we have within our hearts and our minds and our our bodies. And so I, I think we would do well, whether in your groups or on your own, to continue to collect what is it the Lord, that the Lord is teaching you? Because I do feel like it's a bit like drinking from a fire hose when you're being given a completely different way about seeing things than perhaps you've ever been discipled or helped uh, to see in particular as it relates to the themes of sex and sexuality and our identity. Um, and so taking a moment to do that I think will be really key for us along the way. Um, reflecting on Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Author Andy Crouch describes human beings this way, heart, soul, mind, body complexes designed for love. Heart, soul, mind, body complexes designed for love. I think that's really good. And if that's true, and again, I think it is, then human beings are filled with desires. Our hearts are long for affection, our souls crave meaning, our minds are riddled with curiosity, our bodies ache with various kinds of hungers, and all of these desires beg a question from us, don't they? How do we respond to our desires? How do I respond to what I'm feeling in my heart, in my soul, in my mind, in my body? Do we seek after them or do we resist them? Some traditions teach us to resist. Um, the fourth century philosopher Diogenes believed that, and he says, it was the privilege of the gods to want nothing and of godlike men to want little. In other words, what he's saying, wanting is bad, so we must resist our desires. In our modern world, though, we're more inclined to seek gratification. Spiritual teacher Sri Chinmoy wrote that desire means anxiety. This anxiety finds satisfaction only when it is able, he says, to find itself through solid attachment, or to fulfill itself, rather, through solid attachment. So it's common in our day not to resist, but rather to allow these inner hungers or desires to inform our behavior and even shape our self-concept. We satisfy our desires. What do the scriptures say? What does God's word say? Well, it teaches us what I think we intuitively and experientially know, is that not all desires are equal. Not all desires are the same. There's nuance. When the Apostle Paul tells us, uh, rather, that we should abstain from the passions of our flesh, which wage war against our souls, but God also promises to give us the desires of our hearts. Don't you love when the Bible is clear? wage war in your souls, and God's going to give you the desire. Like, some of us have shellacked that on a plate. He's going to give me the desires in my heart. That means, then, that resisting every desire 
can be just as harmful as indulging in every passion. Resisting every desire can be just as damaging as indulging in every passion. So what the Bible prescribes then amidst a world of all kinds of feelings and longings and aspirations and inclinations and passions is wisdom. Church, you and I need wisdom. Are you with me? Is this not something that every single day you could pray or wake up and just go, God, give me wisdom? This is what we need as it relates to our desires. See, Proverbs even has the audacity to suggest in Proverbs 8.11, wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Wisdom is about understanding and embodiment. It's not simply the ability to discern what the truth is, but it understands how to apply virtue. See, wisdom is about what we think, but it's also about how we live. In the language of our journey today, wisdom does not simply know if a desire is good or evil, should be resisted or sought after. Wisdom also knows how we how we should resist that particular desire. Wisdom teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to take every thought captive. To take every thought captive, Paul writes, to obey Christ. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how we take our desires captive and in wisdom interrogate their virtue and learn to seek or resist those desires in a godly way. This is what I think the bride is navigating in the Song of Songs. She has wisdom she seeks some desires, and she is resisting others. And yet, like we all do, all along the way, she's battling fear and anxiety. Here's how we'll organize our time together today. We'll look at the design of our desires, then we'll look at the distortion of our desires, and then lastly, we'll look at the healing of desires. So the design, the distortion, and the healing. Let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we need wisdom. And you have said, all we have to do is ask. So here we are, your sons and your daughters, admitting, confessing, asking that we do not have the wisdom required to live in a way that is ultimately fulfilling and leads to flourishing and goodness for ourselves and those around us. So would you help us today? Would you help us as we open up your word to so graciously do what you were always so faithful to do? Would you speak to us? Because your words are healing, your words are empowering, your words expose the truth and the lies that are alive within us, and you also bind us up through your word. And so I pray that you'd be honored in this time, be with my friends, my sisters, and my brothers, be with us as we open up your word so that we can become the whole people you have called us to be. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as the song continues, uh, the bride seems unable to sleep. Look at Song of Songs, verse 3, or rather, chapter 3, verse 1. She begins this way, On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. She's wrestling with her desires. The woman is longing to be with her beloved. She's thinking about her wedding, which is impending. It's, it's nearing. It's coming. She's thinking about sex. She's thinking about her future. And this isn't a single occurrence. The phrase, on my bed by night, is better translated night by night on my bed. It's not one time. This is every night. Every time she goes to sleep. You've been in a season like that? Every time she lays down, this is the one thing on her mind. And she can't sleep. She can't go to bed. 
She can't get it out of her head. She can't close her eyes. She can't go to sleep. This is a season, a recurring situation, a persistent feeling that will not let her go. And notice, she says, I sought him, but found him not. In other words, it's a desire unmet. It's a longing that's not been satisfied. It's a seeking without finding. And her unmet longings cause her mind to start wandering. And don't you know this? Like it goes to these crazy places when you can't sleep and you can't find satisfaction and peace. She gets out of bed. Look at verse 2. I will rise now and go out about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the, in, in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Now, while some Bible teachers believe that this is a literal uh, reading that she actually gets up out of bed and actually leaves her house and actually walks through the city, that's highly unlikely. Remember, this is a song. It's a poem filled with figurative language, so it is best to take this scene as a symbolic dream, as it were, a summary of what it feels like for her waiting for her wedding day and her for her wedding night. And notice what's on her mind. It's, it's, it's unmistakable what's on her mind. He is. Four times the bride clarifies that she is after him whom my soul loves. Isn't that great? Four times she's like, this is that dude. This is the one who's got my heart, got my soul, got my whole being. Notice she's speaking about herself and her beloved in this wonderful language of the soul. And her desire goes beyond physical and emotional. In Hebrew consciousness, the soul was the life of a person. That's what Andy Crouch is getting at when he talks about this heart, soul, mind, body, complex design for love idea. It's our whole being. She's like, I don't just want part of this dude. I want his whole being. In fact, my whole being wants his whole being. In him, I'll find security, meaning, love, peace. One scholar explains that the groom is named by her desire. She's got a bad. She's into him, Right? Marriage is about that. It's about two souls or two whole lives becoming one. We explored this last week. That's been the design since the start. In Genesis chapter 1, 24 and 25 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed. That's what she desires. Two souls uniting as one. And church, that's a good thing to desire. Marriage is a good desire. It's good to desire something that God calls good, something that he's made. It's good to desire the one whom your soul loves. That's even the design of desire. See, our desires are designed to guide us to shalom. Shalom is this Hebrew idea of wholeness, completeness, flourishing, and peace. Let's think about it. Satisfying hunger with good food makes our bodies healthy. Assuaging loneliness with good friendship and a great meal and conversation makes our hearts full. Fulfilling curiosity with truth sets our minds at ease. 
Satisfying our desire for oneness with what we looked at last week as genital sexuality or genital union in marriage brings great joy and pleasure. You see, a good desire rightly satisfied guides us to shalom. That's the design. But there's more, and this is why we need wisdom. After all, what we really need, what our souls really require, isn't a good meal. It's not friendship. It's not understanding, and it certainly is not marriage. No meal, have you noticed, is eternally satisfying. Sometimes you finish with breakfast, and you're like, what's for lunch? I'm already ready for that. My little brother, when we were growing up, always wanted to know the next three or four meals just so he could plan it out, right? Because he knew not one meal was going to satisfy you. Some of you are like this. You have Excel spreadsheets about restaurants in Chicago. You are not satisfied until every box has been ticked. We know that no meal is eternally satisfying. No conversation keeps us full forever. No one answer leaves us with no more questions, right? Some of us even think, well, if I just knew this one thing about God, then everything else would be fine. Well, then you get that answer, you go, ah, but what about this? And what about this? You see, no one right answer takes away all of our questions. And for anyone who is married, you know that marriage, contrary to what Jerry Maguire taught us, right, will not complete you, will not make you whole. That's because him who our soul actually longs for is our creator. See, God is our true shalom. You see, even the satisfaction of a good desire fulfilled leaves us wanting more. We know this. Cognitively, we know this. Our deepest desire for God was actually stamped on us, on our souls at the beginning of creation. Ecclesiastes, which we'll explore this summer, explains that God made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. There's so much for us to enjoy in life. It is good to enjoy the good things that God gives us. But it is eternity that is written on your hearts, not restaurant week, right? Not marriage, not social or genital sexuality that we explored last week. It is eternity as God himself, 17th century philosopher and scientist Blaise Pascal, called this the God-shaped vacuum or desire in our hearts for every human being when he said, that this void cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. In many respects, we're all like the woman searching in the city for her beloved. Every unmet desire causes us to search more and more feverishly for the one that our soul actually is craving. But ultimately, you do not desire a man. You do not desire a woman. It is not sex. It is not romance. It's not a wedding, and it is not a marriage. God is the one your soul genuinely longs for and genuinely loves because God is our true shalom. This is why even the best marriages leave you wanting more. Even the best sexual experience leaves you wanting more. Even the best meal leaves you wanting 
more. Even our desires and our designs, which have no temporal or even partial satisfaction, point us to God. C.S. Lewis explains that our unmet desires reveal this great need that we have for Him. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He goes on, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand never mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. C.S. Lewis is really going somewhere. I think he's going to have a career someday. <clears throat> Met or unmet desires are designed to guide us to shalom, to peace. The woman's desire for her beloved leads her to this wonderful embrace of the one whom her soul loves. Her soul-level desire leads her to the flourishing gift of marriage. That's the design. But she's also not fully satisfied. She's not entirely settled. This leads us to the distortion of desire. See, a song has the power to convey feelings that prose simply don't possess right? So it's good to think about our emotions as we read this portion of the song. Something happens to us reading about her restless nights, her feverish searching, meeting some clueless watchmen, and all this sexual tension wrapped up in it, right? Something is actually happening to us emotionally. Even when she finds her beloved, did you notice? It's kind of awkward. She like grabs him and won't let him go like she never thought she'd see him again, and then she takes him to her mom's house. That's uncomfortable, that, that seems like she's overreaching a little bit. Something is unsettled in the bride and her desire for her soulmate. It's anxiety-inducing. I don't read this and go, this is really peaceful. Everything's fine. It's like, well, are you okay? Is everything all right? It's stressful. It's uncomfortable. But what is it? What is it about her desires that is causing such anxiety? See, in the days of King Solomon and his bride, virginity was a mark of virtue and purity and marryability, at least for the woman. Now, there is a whole heap of double standards that start showing up within the Song of Songs, and I promise you we will get to them. This is one of them, right? Because in her culture and in her time, virginity was a mark of virtue for her, but not really for Solomon, not really for the man or any man. This was such a revered status that at a bride's or rather, a bride's parents would often ask for the sheets from her wedding night showing a bloodstain to prove her virginity. One scholar explains then in reading this passage that this passage represents the mental anxiety of the woman as she goes through the process of preparing to become a wife. She knows she cannot have him without going through the event of losing her virginity. Now think about this. Her entire life she was told that her value as a woman was predicated on the fact that she was chaste, that she had not had sex with anyone. And now, knowing she's about to have sex, she's lost. 
She cherishes her beloved, but she's learned to protect and value her virginity above everything else. And so as she's losing her virginity, as she's thinking about losing her virginity, she starts to think about losing herself and her reputation and her value. And these competing desires are at war within the bride, causing her to lose sleep night after night. That's a distortion. That's not as it should be. See, while our desires are designed to guide us to shalom, because of sin, they often lead us to shame and death and fear instead. This is why she warns or reminds her friends about the preciousness of their virginity in the very next verse. Look at verse 5. This is the second time she is saying this in the song, almost verbatim. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is where we need wisdom. There's always a desire underneath our desires. After all, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that the bride doesn't really value virginity itself. Instead, she's learned to esteem what virginity gives her, or rather what people promised her virginity would afford her. The desire to be a virgin in the ancient world was a desire to be seen as worthy, as holy, and therefore desirable for marriage. In other words, virginity was the pathway to a kind of peace. And so the woman, night after night, is anxious, not necessarily because she's doubting marriage or marrying this guy, but instead because she's doubting herself and her own identity. She's likely even questioning her upbringing, like many of us perhaps have done. I thought virginity was going to be my shalom, then why, why is all this fear showing up now? And many of us were told our wedding nights were going to be awesome, and you get closer, you go, oh my gosh, I'm terrified. I don't know about this. This is really uncomfortable. Are we going to do it right? I forgot a wine bottle opener. We drank Coke. It was really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's awkward. I don't know what I'm doing. This is broken. This, of course, is complicated further by the fact that Solomon, the groom, is most assuredly not a virgin. Again, we will get to a lot of the dissonance that that creates. But suffice to say, he's writing or singing this song as if he doesn't seem to be battling the same kind of anxiety and identity and worthiness as this woman is. Now, you're feeling this, I am too. Virginity is not some ancient value, is it? Being a virgin is still a very complicated value, an identity marker in contemporary culture. I heard a preacher once tell a story about a conference speaker. A speaker passed around a rose in the room as he uh, delivered a message to a bunch of teenagers about sex and purity. And as the rose traveled around the room, he continued in his spiel. And then near the end, he asked for the rose to be passed up front to him. And then he held up the rose. Only a few petals remained. Stem was broken, busted, barely resembling its previous form. He holds it up in front of this room full of teenagers, and he says, now who would want this? And he made the point, and his point was clear, when you lose your virginity, you lose your desirability. I suspect that many of you can identify with that room full of teenagers, and many of you can identify with the bride. If you grew up in a church community, then more than likely that you were taught directly or indirectly, maybe you were just shamed into this perspective, that your value and identity are a direct result of abstaining from sexual desire. That's your peace. 
your peace in this world, your peace in marriage, is making sure you don't mess up. In our modern environment, we're told almost the exact opposite. Your value and your identity is from seeking and exploring your sexual desire. That's your peace, making sure you're ready and you know what you like and what pleasure looks like to you. But the Bible constantly holds something in tension. The Bible is constantly holding in tension God's desire for holiness and his desire for wholeness. Both of them. Perhaps there's no better display of this reality, of this tension that the Lord holds, his holiness and wholeness, than when a woman is caught in adultery. And she's brought by some religious leaders in front of Jesus, and they want to stone her. If you know the story, you know that they were essentially saying that she's no longer desirable and therefore we should get rid of her. They, they even had a verse, by the way. Can I just say, as a brief aside, God help us, just because you have a verse does not mean you have truth. Just because you can quote something does not mean you are speaking in the tongue of our Heavenly Father. They misquoted a verse, they used it inappropriately, and that was the first stone that they threw. But Jesus doesn't mess around. He's like, don't, get, don't recite stuff to me. I wrote that mug. Like, don't, don't bring that in here. Jesus says in John 8, 7, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And I'm like, yes! This is one of those verses. You better put the Bible down because it gets hot at that moment if you're reading it correctly. The crowd thins out. Of course. Who's gonna... Then Jesus speaks to the woman. And he says this, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. Can you imagine what she's looking like? And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and go sin no more. He says both. He, do you see, Jesus holds in perfect tension holiness. Go and sin no more. But he also holds wholeness. Neither do I condemn you. He holds both. Church, your value is not in your virginity or lack thereof. Your sexual desire, met or unmet, are not the thing that's meant to bring you peace. That's the distortion. That's what we believe in a broken world. The distortion of our desire is making our desires and our relationship and response to them our peace. This is so critical that we understand because as Pastor John Stott explains... Our natural desires have been perverted into sinful desires. Think about this. Sometimes we crave less food than our body needs. Other times we crave more than it needs. That's a distortion. Sometimes we desire less human connection than is good for us. Other times we get enmeshed and codependent in relationships, don't we? That's a distortion. The same is true with sex. Sometimes we ask too much of our sexual desires, seeking them to bring us peace. Other times we make too little of them, that blind abstinence will bring peace. That's a distortion. The distortion of our desires is making our desires our peace. Marvadon explains that shalom starts with the recognition that God is a gracious God. The Creator designed us for wholeness and created our sexuality to be a source of delight. That delight can best be found in living according to our designs, plans, and purposes. Holiness and wholeness. 
God desires that sex be enjoyed exclusively within the covenant of marriage. But God also meets us in our sexual pain, chaos, and distortion of our lives, not with shame, but with his death. He desires wholeness, but he also knows we need healing. And so that's where we go next. I think if nothing else, what I hope that we are aware of is that our souls are not at rest. Our souls are not at peace, are they? There's a war raging within every human heart. The Apostle Paul put it this way in probably his most vulnerable passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is one of the most human passages in all of Scripture. My desires are messy, and even if I'm clear on my desires, I don't have the ability to carry that out. I don't have wisdom. He desires what is good and is wrestling with what is evil because he desires that too. He's at war within himself, just like all of us. This is particularly true of our sexuality. We live in two worlds, don't we? One world, this religious world, is telling us to abstain until marriage, and then all shall be well. Resist all sexual desire. But that doesn't feel very peaceful in singleness or in marriage. Um, The other world that we live in, the broader progressive culture, is telling us to gratify our sexual longings and all shall be well. Indulge in sexual desires. But that doesn't bring peace either. See, resisting every desire seems just as harmful as indulging every passion. Because we need peace, we need healing, and we need wisdom. This tension is on display In Proverbs chapter 9, in this scene, wisdom is portrayed as a woman calling out in the city, and she says in Proverbs 9, verses 5 and 6, Come and eat my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. In the next scene, another woman, this is Lady Foolishness, calls out to the same city, and she says in Proverbs 9, 16, and 17, whoever is simple, let him turn in. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, it's subtle, but the difference between the meal that foolishness offers and the meal that wisdom offers is that foolishness offers a stolen meal. Wisdom offers a meal that she made herself. One is fake, one is real. Foolishness isn't even hiding. Have you noticed this? Foolishness doesn't even hide. It tries to prove to us that stolen and secret meals are actually better. It's better for you. What we learn in this proverb is that the meal of wisdom brings life and the meal of foolishness brings death. So here's the question. How in the world do we know the difference? If we live in a city where we hear the clarion call to satisfy all of our desires and we hear the call to abstain from all of our desires, if we hear the call of wisdom and the call of foolishness, how do we know the difference? On the surface, the invitations and the meals look the same. How do I know if that meal's stolen? It looks delicious. That's all I know. How do we know that the desire for wisdom's meal is better than the desire for the foolish meal? church? We don't. We don't. How encouraging is that? Isn't that fantastic? This is where wisdom begins, though. 
See, the proverb goes on to say, in the middle of those two voices of wisdom and foolishness, it says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The difference between wisdom and foolishness in a word is humility. The fool acts like they know everything. I can figure this out. Show me the meals. I'll tell you what's different about them. I've seen this before. I'm prepared for this, right? I've read up. I've researched. I've figured this thing out. The wise person admits their lack of wisdom and thereby acknowledges God's infinite wisdom. Socrates put it this way, ignorance is the beginning of wisdom. Maybe that's why the Proverbs tells us that fools hate to be corrected, but the wise person loves it. This is where our healing begins. We've been told sexual desire is bad. Resist, abstain. We've been told sexual desire is good. Seek, indulge. Wisdom tells us to take those thoughts captive and confess, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do with this urge. This is what I'm feeling. What should I do? This is what I want. Is it from the Lord? This is a longing. This is an urge. This is a craving. This is an idea that I have. Would it honor the Lord to enjoy now or wait? See, in other words, we're asking, will fulfilling these desires lead to shalom or do I believe that this desire is my shalom? And can I just suggest to you, you cannot do that by yourself. You were never meant to. The Christian life gets impossible when you try to live it out in isolation. Wisdom is impossible when you try to be wise in your own eyes. We need each other. Church in the square, we need to get really good at going to our groups and saying, here's what my desire is. I haven't taken an action on it yet, but here's what I'm feeling. James chapter 1 is really clear that a desire, when it is fully grown, leads to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, leads to death. Can you imagine if we became a people that started confessing our desires and not just our sins? That's what I want. I want you to know my desire before I do something dumb. Before I buy that thing, before I act that way, before I make that decision with my kids, before I leave that house, before I sleep with him, before I marry that person, before we move in together, before we sign a prenup, am I preaching to you yet? Can you imagine, church, if I came to you with a desire, you came to me with a desire, and then we sought the wisdom of God together? If we all just said, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't, I got all these, I never felt this way before, what do I do with this? I feel different about my spouse than when I married them. What do I do? Let's talk about it. Sex isn't enjoyable anymore in my marriage. That's just what I feel. What do I do about that? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's go to God's word. Let's seek his wisdom. See, are are you picking up what I'm throwing down? When we just confess we don't have wisdom and we bring all of our desires to God, to our group, to his word, that's where wisdom starts taking root. All of these distortions, all of these desires that we have, all that we have experienced, Jesus experienced them too. This is what is so fantastic about our Lord, is he's not sitting back going, that's weird, you feel that way? That's crazy. Don't tell the Trinity because we will get you for that, right? (laughs) Dad, did you hear? (laughs) Dad, never believe it. They prayed to me this time and not you, so I'm going to tell you some stuff stirring the tea, right? He's like, no, I get it. 
I remember that. I feel that. That's real. That's human. And yet, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that in every single one of those urges that you experience that the Lord experienced, he always chose wisdom. He never sinned. So this is why he doesn't just identify with us, but he's also our Savior. You know, so he's our example and he's our healer. He doesn't just know what you're going through. He knows the way to the Father from wherever you are. He never ate the meal of foolishness. Jesus is our peace. His wounds bring us healing. Jesus is our wisdom. His life brings us to God. After all, Jesus gives his people a meal too. We've already taken it today. He is the meal of wisdom. He is wisdom itself, one that leads to this, this life, this, this realness, this wholeness. In fact, he says in this in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate and you're you are fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He satisfies you. And sometimes in the midst of our desires, it's hard to figure out our way back to the Lord. We need each other. We need his spirit. We need his word. Wisdom comes from being in life with Jesus. Wisdom comes from looking to Jesus, not our desires for our peace. See, having our most fundamental need constantly, daily, nourished in Christ, peace with God, then enables us to seek desires from peace, not for peace. Are you with me? That I'm not looking to these things that I have pangs for to bring me some kind of solace or satisfaction that they can't afford. I am enjoying and discerning all of the desires of life from a disposition of peace with the Lord. Therefore, I never ask of sex, of food, of intellect, of knowledge, more than it can supply. Amidst her desires, the bride beholds her husband coming. A true and yet complicated gift of God but not as the culmination of her desires or the source of her ultimate peace. She says, what is that coming in verse 6? Up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, except with his sword at his thigh, against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. In the middle of all that she is wrestling with, she's arriving to her wedding day. They're one step closer to marriage. Their hearts are glad and full. Their desires for each other are being satisfied in this union. But the Lord, the one whom their souls truly desire, is the source, the substance of their full 
and forever peace. So may you and I learn what it is to seek our desires from a place of peace, knowing who we are in Christ, not as an aim to try to secure peace through them so that we can actually really enjoy the things that God has blessed us with. Let's pray. Father, we do need healing. There's great confusion and pain that we have experienced in relationship with all of our desires. Even feeling certain things have brought us shame. And so we know that is not your design. Would you teach us? Would you help us? Would you meet us? Would you transform us by the renewal of our minds to see and savor Jesus as the one who truly fills and nurtures and satisfies our souls? And would we be a people not seeking the desires of our hearts and of our minds, of our souls and our bodies as the way to secure peace, but as things we enjoy as people who have found peace in Christ. Help us to do that together. We need each other, God. Forgive us for trying to do this by ourselves. So much of the shame that has been around ideas of sexuality, of marriage, of romance, has told us to keep those secrets in the dark. So would you help us to walk in the light as you are in the light so that we'll have real fellowship with each other and real fellowship with you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.